Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. The 70s in the wine business in California, especially Napa Valley, was nothing but experimentation and excitement and growth and opportunity. Starting a business from the ground up, literally, is exciting but unpredictable. I think solid, real fundamentals will help any business and certainly has helped ours. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. To create a brand with a lasting legacy, owners have to set and follow clear principles from the very beginning. Today's guest has continued to strengthen and grow their brands while maintaining those key principles. Today we're sitting down with Alex Ryan, President, CEO, and Chairman of the Duckhorn Portfolio, North America's premier luxury wine company, with 10 wineries eight state-of-the-art winemaking facilities, seven tasting rooms, and over a thousand coveted acres of vineyards spanning 32 estate properties. Their wines are available throughout the U.S. on five continents and in 50-plus countries around the world. Their stock trades under, not surprisingly, Napa, N-A-P-A. Since 1988, Alex's visionary leadership has been instrumental in establishing and growing the Duckhorn portfolio from a modest 15,000 cases and a few million dollars in revenue to one of the most highly respected and fastest growing luxury wine companies in the world with multiple brands, price points, and styles. Alex's story about moving to the region and rising through the ranks to his current position is so interesting, and it's safe to say I've been looking forward to this interview for months. I've even cracked a bottle of Duckhorn Three Palms Vineyard Merlot 2019 for the occasion. Let's enter the arena with Alex Ryan. My dad had moved to Napa Valley, was in the wine business, moved to Napa Valley to be part of a management team that took over Behringer soon after the beverage company Nestle bought Behringer in the early 70s. And I was in about fourth grade, and I went to school and I met a kid named John Duckhorn. He's still one of my best friends till this day. This is before Duckhorn Vineyard started, before Dan and Margaret Duckhorn, our founder, started the company. I went hunting and fishing and camping with Dan. He was my, my best friend's father. And he decided he was going to get in the wine business, this is the mid-70s, and make Merlot, of which most people had no idea what a Merlot was or why you would focus on Merlot. And as a youngster, I was able to, four dollars an hour, work for him, cutting wood, moving rocks, doing whatever I was told to do. We developed a couple small vineyards together, and I fell in love with the business. Dan Duckworm was a consummate entrepreneur. 
introduced to me to every facet of the business, and it was just so exciting. The 70s in the wine business in California, especially Napa Valley, was nothing but experimentation and excitement and growth and opportunity. There was no limits to the opportunity to what Napa Valley could do in the world of wine. So it was by no means anything short of the most exciting time of the Napa industry's life. Got out of college, studied uh, viticulture, the science of grape growing in college. Got out on a graduate on a Saturday. Dan said, I'll see you 6.30 in the morning on that following Monday. Yep. And I never looked back. I never looked back. Um, and you rose up through the ranks, Alex, like on the production side, right? And like, what were some of the jobs you had before kind of ascending to run the whole thing? I started as Dan's boy, and that meant... Alex, you do what I tell you and do it well. And so I started there, moved into vineyard management, then moved into overall operations and production. I was never a winemaker, but the winemaking team reported into me, the vineyard team. Moved up through general manager, picked up some more of the operations of the sales administrative side, the the company, then the chief operating officer as we became larger, really taking over all facilities, operations, vineyards, winemaking, and the like. Soon after we sold the company to a first private equity group, I took over as president, running the entire operations, and then CEO in 2011, once we had really come of age, we were then a global luxury wine company. Kind of in your own words, maybe first describe the Duckhorn portfolio for everybody listening. A lot of people know Duck, the Duckhorn brand, but they don't understand all of the brands that you own. Sure. The Duckhorn portfolio is a luxury collection of 10 different brands in Washington and primarily in the state of California. Clearly, we started with the Duckhorn Vineyards brand, Merlot's, Cabernet Sauvignon Blancs, all from Napa Valley. Ventured out into a small brand called Decoy, which had two lives, a smaller life in the 80s, 90s, and then it grew into one of the most successful brands in luxury wine company today that spans the Appalachian of the state of California. Paradux, a play on the word pair of ducks. And on every label, guess what? There are two ducks prominently displayed. It's an eclectic blending house, a creative eclectic blending house here in Napa Valley, really kind of showcasing the art of the blend where winemakers get as much creativity as they can really fathom in the luxury tier. Then we started GoldenEye. GoldenEye was a focus only on Pinot Noir up in the Anderson Valley, Northern California, about two and a half hours north of San Francisco. And it was a sheer focus on pure, rugged, coastal Pinot Noirs only. Migration is a new Pinot Noir and Chardonnay winery, really showcasing all the different Chardonnay and cool climate Pinot Noir regions throughout the entire state of California. Canvasback is one of our brands. We started in 2012 up in Washington State, where some of the best and most exciting Bordeaux-style blends are coming from. We have two acquisitions in the model. We acquired Calera, which is down in the Central Coast outside of Monterey. Jensen Vineyard, exactly. And Calera is a very, very interesting one in that Josh Jensen, the founder of Calera, who's about the same age group as Dan Duckhorn, came to California and decided that California could compete with the finest Burgundian-style Pinot Noirs of the world. The reason that we, as winemakers and consumers in California, enjoy luxury Pinot Noir is because the efforts that he started and laid down in terms of California can compete with the best of the best. And he did it early on when no one even believed in luxury Pinot Noir. So that was a fascinating historical um, acquisition for us in 2016. In 2018, we made another acquisition focusing in Pinot Noir. We believe in Pinot Noir heavily amongst the other wines, but Pinot Noir 
is really just a very, very up and coming and very, very exciting, especially into the world of luxury level, higher price luxury level Pinot Noirs. We acquired Costa Brown, probably one of the most uh, successful cult styles Pinot Noirs in the current market. So I'll, I'll get to my question. And, you know, to me, you you didn't found the business, and I know you know the founders, but I, I kind of feel like you must have some founder DNA in you since you've been there for such a long time. But coming from the production side, you know, a lot of CEOs are kind of hired guns, financial types. How has how coming from the production side made you a better CEO? I think it's applied to my whole career, but it applies to me now and our success as a public company, I think, more than ever. I told the street that I was going to be a winemaker first and a businessman second. And I think when you're dealing with winemaking, which is which is an emotional purchase, right? You don't you need diapers and chips and gasoline and stuff like that, but you don't need a fifty dollar bottle of wine. You want one, but you don't need one. So it's an emotional purchase. And there's authenticity, there's tradition, there's all these things built into this. You know, fine wine has been consumed since the Roman days, so it's not like a new it's not a new entry in consumer goods, right? This has been going on for a long, long time. So I think I was able to give authenticity. I understand the soil, I understand the winemaking timeline. I understand the yield changes year over year. I understand the differences in different soils, different farming techniques can make. I understand the influence of the barrels and the intricacies and the craziness that a winemaker faces, right? It's not one plus one equals two. One plus one could add up to anything you want in the magic of winemaking, right? Mother Nature throws your curveball every single day. And the differences between one wine to the other can mean the parts per billion. So your ability to not only taste them, understand them, influence them, and then obviously create a great bottle of wine is something that production people have, that, that financial guys and sales guys, with no disrespect, but they just don't have it. I think I've gained the respect and the authenticity in that regard within our corporation, within what we do, and amongst my peers. And I think that that has done us well. Again, as it relates to, we're here for the long haul. Yeah. And so as it relates to what I tell Wall Street, I'm going to be a great winemaker first, and then I'll be a great businessman second. And those two adding up in that direction, I think we'll make sure that our, our long-term stock vision and value in the marketplace remains really powerful. Well, if you if you make exceptional wine and you have the right portfolio and different price points, the rest is going to take care of itself kind of right. What do you think the reason is behind the Duckhorn portfolio's success? Is it the construction of the portfolio and the brands and the price points? What do you see as the top few things that really separate you from the pack? At the top of the list, it's easy. It's really easy. It's focus. We are in the luxury segment only, and we're wine only. That focus allows us to clear off the table of a lot of a lot of really competing elements, distractions, things like that. We don't make $5 bottle wine. We don't make RTDs. We don't make whiskey, beer. We don't make bowling balls. You know, we, we're just focused on luxury wine. It's defined as $15 and up. In our industry, by scan data, we look at it in our particular portfolio. It's kind of that $20 to $200 range, which we think is the growing, fastest, scalable, most exciting portion of the uh, luxury segment, it's focus. So everything we do is surrounded around wine in the luxury category, and that allows us to make really good pinpointed decisions. On top of that, you know, I'm not a doctor, but we're practicing too. Our practice has been going on for almost 50 years, so we're getting really good at it. We understand what our consumer wants at the luxury level. We understand at the right price points at the luxury level. We, we understand what type of visitation and activities and touch points they want. So, again, it's a list of 10,000 things that starts with focus and then continuously reinforced 
uh, what we think our consumer, our luxury wine consumer expects out of us. And we're able to continue to deliver. Talk about your omni-channel distribution strategy, and in particular, kind of the direct-to-consumer channel, which was up almost 60% last quarter. Obviously, a huge opportunity in that part of the omni-channel strategy to connect directly with your consumer. Talk about that whole strategy and why direct-to-consumer is really taken off. Dan Duckhorn, Dan and Margaret Duckhorn started this back in 1980 with our first release of our first 1978 bottle of wines. And they sent out a letter to us, probably his Christmas card list, and said, Dear Friends. And that was unheard of at that time. So we've been focused on talking to our end consumers as best we can. Obviously, technology has helped out quite a bit. We completely believe in, we're customer-centric, and we believe the end consumer is the most important piece in the whole system. I look at direct consumer sales as your biggest form of marketing, really. If you think about it, you, it's your stickiest customer. They get spoon-fed the information, the answer their questions. They get the taste. They get their closest to us. So not only is there a higher gross margin bottle of wine, you're selling at a higher retail bottle point, which is great, and that's important, but it's also phenomenally high source of marketing for us. Those customers will walk away from our tasting rooms or our virtual websites or any other way we, just, we, we interact with them on a DTC basis, and they'll go back to their houses and buy from their local clubs, their favorite restaurants, their favorite stores. Once you've created that type of connection with people and you do it right and you do it with respect and authenticity, we believe that that you've kind of created a customer for life as long as you don't screw it up. And so we see DTC as high margin, high return, and, and almost more importantly, high marketing value. Obviously, technology has helped us out tremendously in being able to talk to our consumers however they want to be talked to, whether it's, you know, through websites or email blasts or text blasts or, most excitingly, at our tasting rooms. Having our guests come to wine country and experience the wine lifestyle is clearly probably our, you know, our most effective way to connect with the wine evangelists. You talked about emotional connection earlier. Alex, part of that omni-channel strategy is off-premise, and I know you talk about that as your greatest opportunity. What is off-premise, and why is that such a big opportunity for the company going forward? Well, off-premise are stores, right? Off-premise is where you buy the bottle of wine at a facility, at at an establishment, and take it home, take it off-premise. On-premise would be restaurants, bars, and things like that. Off-premise is where your, your greatest volume increases are going to occur, Uh, Restaurants, by comparison, typically skew higher bottle prices but lower volume. Off-premise typically skews a little lower bottle price but higher volumes. And if you just think about the amount of chains and stores and independent wine shops around the United States, we just think there's a lot of untapped market there for us to, one, get in with them, two, maybe add another skew and then increase velocities with them. So... In our business, as you know, it's a volume-driven game. The growth is largely volume and price-driven primarily by volume. And so those off-premise channels, those store channels, are going to give you the most opportunity to find new ones. And then once you're in, to just increase overall velocities. Alex joined the Duckhorn portfolio shortly after it was founded in 1976, and as someone who has watched the brand transform over the years, I wanted to know his philosophy on investing in innovation and technology. Technology has helped us move wines more gently, more because wines are really a food product, so you want to move it very, very gently and efficiently. 
By the same token, technological obsolescence is not necessarily a risk that I think much about, right? The Romans and we are still making wine in very similar ways, adding yeast to grapes to make a fermented product called wine, just with different containers and different pumps and different technologies. But the base operation is very, very similar. Technology, though, in, in the world that you and I live in right now is very, very important, especially on the vineyard side, right? Trying to become more sustainable, better stewards of the land, better usage of the finite resource water and things like that, better technical growing conditions under climate change risks that we all face collectively. We're relatively benign to the environment as opposed to maybe some other inter- industries, but we can always do better. So I think technology continues to help us help us there quite a bit. In terms of connecting with our customers, best example I got for you is COVID, right? When, when the world kind of was yeah. shut down. People, our customers still wanted to engage the wine experience. They still wanted to go to a winery, but they couldn't. So what we created was virtual tastings where they would buy the wine and we packaged it with some cheese purveyors and stuff. So they'd get some crackers, some nice cheese, a couple of bottles of wine on a virtual basis, have a, have a, anywhere in the world, frankly, with our wine educators, just conduct the tasting in their living rooms. And it was a fascinating way just to understand the mindset of the wine consumers out there. They still wanted their wine. They just couldn't go to wine country during the depths of the pandemic. So we found a way around them to give them a wine experience with a wine educator or a winemaker or something like that. It was a fascinating, fascinating oh my time God, totally. of just p- pivoting, pivoting really from what we knew to what we needed to do. Well, COVID, I mean, people, I think people drank a lot in COVID. I know I enjoyed a bunch of, of great wines, but you mentioned kind of international and I have to think that your total addressable market is really significant. What do you consider the total addressable market for the company and kind of what's the international opportunity? It's interesting. If you think about the broad market, the prize in our business is in the United States market, right? Everyone else exports or dies. We just happen to live in the largest wine consuming market in the world. So it's a little different for us. We have a relatively small percentage of our wines are sold on an international basis. We want to be in those 50 great cities around the world. As an internationally known wine producer, you want to be in those great cities. We all know which ones they are. We're in almost all the continents now. We're about 70 different countries we export to, and it's really, really exciting. I think export will grow consistently and slowly over time and become a more meaningful part of our business. U.S. domestic, though, I still think is completely, it's a vast untapped market, right? If you look at the coast, we do really well on the coast, west coast and east coast. There's a vast middle part of our country that continues to get more and more excited about fine wine. So we're just finding new areas to move into throughout the United States. I think that'll still remain our dominant growth geography, if you will, over the next five or 10 years. One thing I wanted to mention, I know your SG&A last quarter was Mm -hmm. up a bit, but I know part of that is because you're investing in growth. And I love the fact that you look at this over a 10 or 20 year period versus trying to cut off spending. You know, you can't cut your way to growth in spending wise. Talk about your growth investments. What are you investing in? What are you most excited about when you think about, hey, you know, we're putting money to work in the future and it's going to pay off over the next 10 years? Great question. And it's pure and simple, frankly. We're putting some investment in the systems to help us to scale. That's kind of a canned answer. Everyone's got to do that kind of stuff. The the reality is, 
It's people, right? Remember we talked about earlier in, in our discussion, it's an emotional purchase, right? My dad my dad was in a business a long, long time ago. He used to call it a belly-to-belly business. It's about relationships. It's about making contacts. We use digital marketing, digital sales like, like everyone else does. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to taste a bottle of wine with a customer across the table from you. You're going to have to talk and interact and, and have some socialization. So quality people, of which we have hundreds, and in the future, more quality people out there really singing the praises of Duckhorn portfolio throughout the markets, making contacts in their regional areas. A salesman in, in Kansas City, right, they know all the great restaurants. They know the buyers. And you're going to have to get in front of them, and, you, and there's no real way around it. It is a true block and tackling business. Again, it's, it's, you know, it's an emotional purchase, and you don't need to make emotional purchases. But, but if someone can help you understand why, then you do want to make an emotional purchase. So we will, and as we have since our day one, continually invest in quality salespeople in targeted regions around the United States and the world to make sure that we are able to get some good leverage with our distributor partners and make sure we're able to talk to the trade however and wherever they want to be they want to be engaged yep. with super important beyond the sales force and everybody in the fields the people who are making the wine you have the product you have the portfolio and the sales force talk about the executive team chief sales officer has been with me for about 27 years COO's been with me for about 20 years. CFO, who's retiring for all kinds of good reasons, has been with me for 15 years. So we have a lot of really interesting depth on the executive committee. We meet 52 times a year every Monday morning for three hours because it's unacceptable at Duckhorn Vineyards to say to anyone that you don't know what's going on. We communicate, communicate, communicate. We, we have shared visions. We, we tussle back and forth, but we walk out of that room every day. We're pulling on the oars in the same direction. It's an emotional uh, job. If you're just in it for the money, you may not be in the right job, right? You got to be passionate. You want to bleed the blood of duck oil. You want to feel it. You want to share it with your families. It needs to have a, a kind of emotional impact to your lifestyle. It's a great lifestyle, too. I mean, we live in wine country, right? It could be worse. <laughs> we eat well and we drink well. But the cause, right, the cause for our employees, the cause for our shareholders and our and our customers, the fact that we get to put in some bottled history every single year into a bottle that we harvest and grow ourselves. These are passionate feelings and a really interesting business. We've done something together as a team that no other wine company has successfully done that I know, certainly in the United States, has gone public successfully. Yeah. In a challenging time, 21, the cohort of 21, you know, 2021 was a tough time to go public for many reasons. But the fundamentals are strong, the strategy is strong, and trade is, is, is following successfully kind of what we laid out there. So I think that, that sense of success also motivates my overall team, not, the, not just my executive team, the whole team. But, you know, everyone wants to be on a winning team, right? It's great to be a winner. And so we've created a winning culture and doing it the right way. You mentioned this, ESG priorities are, are big for the company. And maybe tell us about that, because it, that that's just important as the financial performance. You're doing the right thing and making the world a better place in a way. I always like to start that conversation by saying Dan and Margaret Duckhorn, the founders of our company, were doing ESG because ESG was the right thing to do before anyone had to talk about it, right? Pay your employees a living wage. Make sure you have good, healthy, nice, fun, safe work environment. Take care of the vineyards and the environment. Take care of the communities you work in and so on and so forth. So once we went public, we got an incredible platform both requested of and desired to share this, these great things we're doing as an industry. And our industry, as I said earlier, I think is 
generally very good and relatively benign on the en environment as it relates to many other industries. But we have a lot to be proud of. We're a luxury product. We sell luxury good wines. We're profitable as an industry and, again, as a company. So we're able to give back. We're able to do a lot of the right things easily that resonate with us as employees and, and co-owners of the business and equally as important for our different age groups of consumers. They believe about different things, but they do care deeply across the age groups about doing the right thing. And we could argue that for forever, but everyone knows the right thing to do, whether they're willing to say it or not. And doing the right thing's not that difficult. And now we just have a platform to talk about it. You know, we're focused on things. We have such an agricultural footprint. We're focused on, on proper technologies in the vineyards, proper water management, things like that, lightweight bottles, trying to do right by, by, by distribution costs and things such as that. I always say that sustainability starts with employees. If employees aren't getting treated well, nothing else matters. So you start with the human element, and then you'll get all the other priorities kind of in line, and you'll work, you'll work through those over time. Alex, we talked about M&A in the very beginning, how you've acquired a couple brands. I know that's part of your strategy. If a smaller, you know, founder-led winery is looking to sell, why would the Duckhorn Group be the best buyer? How do you ensure a cultural integration and a business integration? How do you kind of approach all that? Yeah, that's tricky, right? Because they're all different, right? Every winery, there are no cookie-cutter wineries, which kind of makes our business fun and exciting anyways. We've acquired two and kept the founders involved to the degrees they want to be involved. Founders are part of the story of a brand, right? The br brand's largely are built on founders and that story and that authenticity and connection. So as I've learned now for 40 years, I, I do think I have a good understanding and repertoire with <clears throat> making sure founders stay engaged with the, the authenticity, the story, the marketing of the company, doing the right things, making great wine. I think we know how to do that pretty well. But each acquisition... I don't want to be a company that acquires for the sake of acquiring, right? You need to acquire for a reason. It has to make sense in the market, make sense financially, make sense for the culture. There's so many elements. I think I have a pretty good feeling for which ones will and which ones will not. You know, Alex, one thing I did want to ask you is I feel like the wine business in a way, like you can control what you can control. And there's a lot of macro factors that you deal with, including the weather. But, you know, here we are in early 23 and it's like war in Europe and inflation and, you know, bottles and materials and shipping and staffing, you know, the prices have all gone up. How do you approach like managing through all this stuff that you may not be able to control? Because you're putting up amazing financial performance during a period like this. How do you how do you kind of approach all that? I do kick a lot back to our, our founders, Dan and Mark Duckhorn, who helped uh, kind of establish some of the core principles of the company. We've always run a really, really tight business shop behind the scenes, right? If you're capitalized correctly, if you're not greedy, if you know what you're doing, if you're making common, good common sense, logical decisions and not betting the ranch, right? I guess I'd say good business fundamentals are there for a reason, right? And good business fundamentals typically will carry you through challenging times. With our business, and you kind of pointed out a couple areas, you know, we are heavily reliant on agriculture. We do have long in inventory cycles. Diversification is really the only yeah. risk offset you have to agricultural operations. So we are highly diversified, both in our account base, customer base, within luxury, our price point base, 
and on agriculturally extremely well diversified that that helps us weather kind of some of the challenges we could enumerate 10 incredible challenges in the last 10 years global warming fires global pandemic war in europe so i think that fundamentals i think solid real fundamentals will help any business and certainly has helped ours to weather uh, and I think greedy, you don't need you don't need the last dollar on the table. You need to work hard, get your fair share. But if you're always looking for the last dollar, you might end up with the last dollar, and that might be the last one you ever see. What's the proudest moment of your career with the company? There's two I'll share with you. I have a picture in my office of my executive team on the uh, ringing of the bell that we I brought Dan Duckworth, the founder of the company. He was standing up there. We were sitting there ringing the bell together, and it was. We used to joke back in the early 80s, we used to joke about going public. And that was completely and absolutely just a you know, Monday morning joke. And to actually pull that off and have him experience that with us was magical. The other thing that I'm most proud of, the team we've been able to assemble, I think that we've arrived at the best group of employees, dedicated professionals, creative, passionate people. You know, they're the ones carrying the torch into the future. And my proudest moment would be the assembly of the people who are the, the street fighters for Duckhorn, doing it day in and day out. Their successes could never be enumerated enough. My last question, Alex, and then you're off the hook, which is your go-to bottle of wine, like during the week, if you're just going to have a glass of wine, or if you have like a really special occasion with your best friends, what are you serving? Okay, great, great question. My go-to is seasonal. My go-to now with my wife at home is Duckhorn Vineyards, a North Coast Sauvignon Blanc. It's a juggernaut in the industry. When I'm with close friends and I want to do something fun, I'll go into the cellar and pull something, typically an older one. And part of the magic of our business is we're bottled history, right? So you pull out a 1985-something, right? We could talk about getting into college, right? You, get, you can talk about something happened in the mid-'80s. It's a discussion point. The older it is, the, it's more of a 50-50 whether it's good or not. But the good ones are memorable. Even the bad ones are memorable. Wine is a capturing a piece of history that then fosters discussion and, and, and socialization. So when I'm with my good friends and I want to do something fun, I'll go grab something unique and or old, and we'll sit down and just giggle about it and have a great time. And then I get to thank my lucky stars that this is the business I've chosen to be in. Duckhorn Portfolio has carved out their significant legacy in the wine industry with an enduring entrepreneurial spirit and decades of experience. Their distinctive locations set them apart, and today they continue to expand their portfolio by developing new lines and varieties. Over the years, their ability to combine luxury with authenticity has secured a loyal customer following across the country and around the world. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Alex Ryan for joining me on the show today, the Duckhorn Group. They've built a fabulous business that is going to endure for many decades to come and is unrivaled in the industry. The company has posted exceptional financial results since they've been public, but more importantly, their eyes are on the future and they're investing in growth. 
This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.